Will you remain standing and pray with me? Almighty God, we pray that you would send to us the spirit of your Son anew and afresh this Sunday, this Lord's Day, so that we might experience anew his presence with us. May his presence in us comfort those who are hurting, give joy to those who are joyful. And Lord, in all things, may we find our hope in him, who is our life, our joy, and our comfort. We lift this up to you, our God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you've made it, and uh, I'm not talking about 2020 being over, though that's great, but I'm also talking you've made it through another season of Hallmark movies, and so for that, you can be glad. Uh, For some of us, uh, we we are so glad, and uh, it uh, couldn't come soon enough, and for others of us, we are so sad to see it go, Uh, and so, but no matter whatever you think about these movies, they reflect a simple desire for life to go smoothly. And indeed, in all these movies, no matter what happens, what little, very little complications that happen, everything goes very smoothly and always ends in the best possible way. They don't reflect well our world, do they? They certainly don't reflect 2020. Our world is one often punctuated by suffering, as well as joy, but often punctuated by suffering. And so we know that this world that we experience is not the world that's portrayed for us often at Christmas in shows and in movies, because this is not the world that we experience. And so one temptation for us during Christmas is that we put lipstick on a pig. You know the phrase, kind of superficially gliding over the things that are really wrong there? And here's the temptation more specifically for us as Christians. That during this time of Christmas, that we sing songs that proclaim the joy and peace that God gives to us and to the world in the gift of his son, Jesus, born in human flesh, without fully acknowledging or facing deep human suffering and the evil that forms the context into which Jesus was born. We should sing those songs. We should sing them, but we must sing them in full recognition of the world in which Jesus came and the world in which Jesus continues to come year after year, month after month, week after week. We should sing these songs. However, the ever-present temptation is to do so without also clearly hearing and seeing the context of evil, sin, and suffering within which they were originally sounded and continue to sound today in the context of your own suffering, in the context of the suffering of your friends and those neighbors that live beside you or your coworker, or even in the context of suffering throughout this world. Our gospel lesson from Matthew 2 refuses to put lipstick on the pig. It banishes all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes. It does not sentimentalize the birth of Jesus, like so many of the Hallmark movies do for Christmas or for Thanksgiving, or for any other holiday or occasion. In our gospel lesson, Matthew shows us that before the Prince of Peace could walk or talk, he was a homeless refugee 
fleeing violence with a price on his head. That's the world Jesus comes into. That's Christmas in the scriptures. From his earliest years, Jesus intimately knew the pain and suffering of this broken world east of Eden. Instead of scenes of peace and joy in our gospel lesson, we encounter grotesque violence and unspeakable suffering with Herod's murder of innocent children, the holy innocents. What we just celebrated as a feast day on the 28th, I believe. Grotesque violence and unspeakable suffering is what Jesus enters into in the first Christmas. It is within this context of violence and suffering, evil and pain, that Jesus enters into history in human flesh, in our flesh. In Jesus, not despite the evil and tragic events that happened around his birth, but because of them, because of them, God is providing the salvation and rescue that Israel longed for and through it his justice and life for the world. And here's the Christmas message this morning proclaimed from our gospel lesson. God addresses and confronts evil and suffering by sending his only son Jesus to be God with us in human flesh, in the midst of evil and suffering in order to defeat them, ultimately on the cross and by the resurrection. Read that one more time. This is what our gospel lesson is about. God addresses and confronts evil and suffering by sending his son, his only son Jesus, to be God with us in human flesh, in the midst of evil and suffering, in order to defeat them, ultimately on the cross and by his resurrection. So look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew presents this really in three movements, three movements of fulfillment. I don't know if you heard that refrain. This was the fulfillment of what the prophets had said, or what a prophet, or what the prophet Jeremiah spoke. Beginning in verse 13 and following. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew claims that Jesus fulfills Hosea 11.1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That's his quotation from the prophet Hosea. And for a moment, it looks as if Matthew is ignoring the fact that Hosea looks back to Israel, back to Israel's exodus from Egypt, and identifies there in the first phrase of verse 1 of Hosea 11 that Israel is the son of God. Hosea is not necessarily looking forward to a son of God yet to come in the context However, Matthew sees Jesus as so thoroughly identified with Israel and so thoroughly identified with Israel's story and history that a part of Jesus' role in mission is to make Israel's story complete. He finishes what Israel was always supposed to do in God's economy of salvation. He completes their story. He completes their mission as son of God, Israel in person succeeding at last where Israel for generations had failed. Jesus completes Israel's story and mission in part by entering into their suffering and experience of violence 
and injustice, the experience of exile. And he enters into and identifies with their experience of exile by being himself an exile, a refugee in Egypt. And yet, behind all this is the even deeper story that Scripture tells, the story of God exiling not just Israel, but all humanity, Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden so long ago at their rebellion, in which through their rebellion and sin, they subjected the world to evil, to death, and to suffering and pain. God responds to humanity's rebellion, their exile from his presence in the garden, and their eventual spiral into violence and suffering. It didn't take long for the first pair of brothers to murder, with Cain murdering his own brother Abel. And it doesn't take long in the biblical narrative for there to be utter and widespread violence on the earth, pain and suffering to the full. And God responds to this. He responds to human rebellion. He responds to human violence by making a covenant with some random guy in Ur of the Chaldeans, with Abraham. And through Abraham and his descendants, God promises to bless the nations. And in the biblical record, in the Old Testament, blessing is, is the fullness of life. If you remember back to Genesis 1, God blesses them and they were fruitful. Multiply, fill the earth. Life is a sign of God's blessing. The fullness of life is a sign of God's blessing, which was lost. And God in his wisdom and mystery decides to pick one man and his descendants and says, through your people, through your children, I will bring resolution to what took place in the garden. I will bring life to death. I will end suffering. I will bless the nations through you. Yet as Israel's story unfolds, they fail to complete the mission for which God had called them because of their own rebellion against God, which landed them in exile in Assyria and Babylon. And so in the fullness of time, as we read last week from Galatians, God sent his son, Jesus, born of the woman, into this world to do what Israel could not do, to complete what Israel could not complete, making a way out of exile, not only for Israel, but also for all humanity to come back to God, make their way back to the creator, to the source of life and blessing. This is what Jesus does. This is the Christmas good news. Jesus leads the way out of Egypt. Jesus leads the way out of exile. Jesus leads the way out of captivity to sin and death. He is the son whom God called out of Egypt, whom, as we heard last week in our, in our, in our Galatians reading, we are through him children of God. We are in him led out of captivity into the life of God as God's children. So by entering into and identifying with Israel in exile, Jesus enters into and identifies with humanity, exiled from God. That's the first movement of this passage, our gospel reading. Second, Jesus not only comes in the flesh to enter into and identify with Israel, and humanity in their exile, but he also comes to enter into and identify with human suffering. He identifies 
with pain. He identifies with the suffering of humanity. Look with me at Matthew 2, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. That's a hard passage. It's made, in my mind, even more difficult because there's no record of this in Josephus or any other historian from that period. And that's not because this is a fictitious happening. It's not fictitious. It's because this was seen as such a small blip on the radar of the atrocities that Herod was known for. We're talking about a man who killed his own sons out of suspicion, not out of hard evidence, out of suspicion that they were plotting to overthrow him. A man who killed his beloved wife from suspicions that they were plotting to overthrow him. A man so narcissistic and wicked that when he died, he ordered that all the elders of Jericho be killed so that there would be mourning at his death. So the, the killing of maybe 20 at the most young boys in a small backwater town outside, five, six miles outside of Jerusalem, didn't really register on the radar in the first century. This is a hard text. This is the world that Jesus enters into. A world of evil, suffering, and pain, and death. And you know what? The world has not changed. The world we still live in is still a world of evil, pain, and suffering. We've experienced some of that this year. And all around the world, the full spectrum of evil and suffering has been experienced. And this is the world that Jesus comes into as a babe, as a child, as God with us. He enters into this suffering. And Matthew, Matthew simply just does not report Herod's evil act of violence and injustice dispassionately, though. No, he draws upon an ancient lament from one of the most sorrowful times in Israel's history, the time of exile. He quotes Jeremiah 31.15, which speaks of the most sorrowful time, a time when Rachel, who by that time had been long dead, this is the mother of Jacob, the mother of the man whose name was turned to Israel. She had been long dead and buried in the tomb in Bethlehem. But Rachel weeps for her children in this lament, which poetically describes her mourning from the grave for her descendants, led into exile from Ramah, Ramah was a staging ground for the Babylonians. They gathered all the Israelites that they were going to take with them back to Babylon. And from that point, they left with them. And you can hear the weeping of Rachel from the tomb, as it were. That's the, that's the power of this lament. The dead are even giving their voices to sorrow. Rachel, who wept from her grave in Bethlehem during the captivity, now weeps at another nearer crisis. 
Rachel here embodies the collective voice of pain and suffering that Israel has experienced from the exile all the way to Herod's murder of these innocent children. And even more so, she embodies the cry of all humans who suffer evil in this broken world. Yet, in response to Rachel's weeping, past, present, and future, God called his son Jesus to identify with the suffering. He called his son Jesus to identify with exile, the exile is people, your exile from God. By taking on human flesh and being born of the Virgin Mary, God locates his only son, Jesus, firmly within the realm of human suffering at the first Christmas. And we cannot miss that. He is a baby with a price on his head. And there really is no other way in God's reasoning, in God's wisdom. For if he is to be God with us, then he must be with us in the pain and in our suffering. And because Jesus comes to be God with us in human flesh, we know that he feels our human pain and suffering as deeply as we do. It's not God knowing that you suffer abstractly. He took on human flesh. He experienced suffering, deep and profound suffering, as each of you do. He knows what it's like. He is very familiar with what you're going through, with what you feel, with the sorrow, the pain, the loneliness, whatever it might be right now in this moment, in the past, or whatever lies in front of you. Jesus knows it. God knows it. Not abstractly, but existentially. He knows it. He's experienced it. For those who have suffered who are suffering, who will suffer the wounds of life in this broken world, Jesus shares your pain. He offers a consolation deeper than reasoned arguments that might try to give it meaning or explain its existence. God truly understands and cares. And he paid an awful price to make it better. This brings us to Matthew's third movement, the third fulfillment. Jesus enters into and identifies with us in exile from God and in human suffering and pain. And this is the third thing, in order to lead us back to God and to defeat ultimately evil, pain, and suffering. Listen to Matthew 2, 18-23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The passages from Hosea and Jeremiah that Matthew has drawn upon in, his, in this reading this morning, the first one from Hosea, the second one from Jeremiah, 
They point to a time when God would lead Israel to a new exodus out of exile that would ultimately restore them and finally put an end to their pain and suffering. And not only theirs, but the prophets also point to a time when the Messiah would come, when Jesus would come, and he would bring this restoration to the nations as well. Not just Israel, but Israel would finally be a blessing to the nations. They would finally receive the life that God has always intended for humanity from the garden on. Listen again to this hope in Jeremiah 31, just two verses after what was quoted by Matthew. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jesus' return to Israel from exile in Egypt after the death of Herod points to his even greater return from exile in the grave to resurrected life in which he deals a death blow to death itself. Jesus' exile in Egypt points, points to his time that he spends in the grave and from which God redeems him and calls him out of into new resurrected life. And as folks connected to Jesus Christ through the waters of baptism, through a good confession and repentance, we too can be drawn out of death and into life. While Herod is an historical figure, he embodies sin and evil that rebels against God's life-giving work in Jesus through death-dealing efforts in, in an attempt to murder Jesus. This is not the first time a human ruler has embodied the forces of evil and death that contest God, that work to subvert his covenantal promise not only to Abraham but to the world. Pharaoh in Exodus 1 was another one who wanted to kill Hebrew boys, and God in his mercy saved Moses to bring redemption for Israel. And ultimately here, God saves Jesus, the child, who will bring ultimate restoration to the world. Herod dies. It's not an insignificant fact in the story. Herod dies and Jesus returns. Herod dies and Jesus returns. And this points to Jesus' ultimate triumph over evil and suffering on the cross and by the resurrection, in which death dies and Jesus returns. He goes to the grave, he descends to the dead, and he arises triumphant over death, over evil over suffering, over your pain. Herod's death indicates that there are limits to evil and suffering. Though though powerful, evil and sin, suffering and pain will not last forever in this world before the face of God. In Christ's death on the cross, where he experienced exile from the Father's presence. And we know this because he cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Christ's death on the cross, where he experienced exile from the presence of God, we discover God's ultimate way of dealing with evil, foolishness to the Greeks. God deals with evil through a man crucified. And through that, suffering is redeemed. 
and healing is initiated in and through the wounds of Jesus. Just listen to 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. While suffering and evil are not immediately eradicated in the cross and by the resurrection of Jesus, they are ultimately defeated. And we await the time when Christ will return in glory to consummate and to bring about in full consummation what he has already accomplished on the cross. We long for that time when he will wipe away every tear and he will take away every pain and he will heal every broken scar that we have in our bodies and in our souls and in our hearts. That's what he has already accomplished on the cross. So in Jesus, taking on human flesh in our exile and suffering, God confronts human evil and suffering, resisting them and ultimately defeating them and the forces of sin and death that ultimately or that hold humanity captive. Jesus leads us out of captivity, out of our exile and back to God. And while we still experience evil and suffering in this broken world, we wait in confident hope. That's what we've been talking about all Advent season. We wait in confident hope that God will return and restore what has been broken. The God, the God who entered into our human pain and suffering, God with us in human flesh, Jesus Christ, that he will put an ultimate end to evil, suffering, and pain. Church, This does not mean that the experience of suffering and pain and evil has been taken away from us now. For we know that's not the case. Yet while we still live in broken bodies, within a broken world, God offers us the consolation and comfort of his presence through the spirit of his son as one who has experienced himself suffering and evil in this broken world. No, no, that no matter what you experience in this world and in this life that brings pain and suffering, Jesus is there with you. He is with you in the loss because he has felt loss and knows loss. He is with you in suffering and pain from whatever it might be, the loss of a loved one or a child, broken relationships. He's with you. You are not alone. You are not alone. And I I know so often it feels like you're alone. When you're experiencing suffering, when you're experiencing pain or isolation, but know this, that you are not alone. And in those moments, in the midst of suffering, when you are at some point able to hear his voice again, because it is so hard at times to see him or to hear his voice when you're going through the midst of that, but when you're able to hear his voice again, he will declare to you that this suffering will not last forever. It will end. Evil and suffering are not infinite, but God, 
who is with you in the midst of your suffering is. He is infinite. He is stronger. He has more enduring power than pain, than suffering, than evil. Evil and suffering end in either healing, death, or the coming of Christ. That may sound on the face not very hopeful, but it is utterly hopeful. Because these things end. What other hope is there? So church, we do not have to we do not have reason, or we do have reason. We do have reason to be joyful and hopeful this Christmas and beyond, even in the midst of suffering, because God is with us in our suffering, and he will not permit it to last forever. Indeed, he has triumphed over suffering and evil by taking on flesh, by dying on the cross, and by God the Father raising him from the dead in victory over whatever it is that you are experiencing or will experience in this life. Over your own sin, he reigns supreme. He will bring it to an end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.